0: Welcome to our latest episode. I am Vivian, one of the co-hosts of the Pulse Podcast. Our purpose is to capture the pulse of healthcare innovation, spanning leaders across the healthcare ecosystem. Today, we're super excited to have Connor Haley, CEO and co-founder of Axle Health, as our guest today. Prior to founding Axle Health, Connor ran product and engineering at EnterMedicare and was a software engineer at ZocDoc and Shout. He has spent his career dedicated to expanding access to care through innovative care delivery models. Connor's entrepreneurial roots started when he attended Columbia University and invented Flick, which he presented back then at CES, an annual trade show held in Vegas. Founded in 2020, Ask Health is bridging the gap between virtual and physical care, enabling any provider or healthcare organization to send nurses in-home to administer blood draws, vaccines, injections, and other basic services. Ask Health is announcing their recent fundraise of $2.4 million of seed funding led by a pair VC, Foo with participation from Wisdom VC, Pioneer Fund, Rebel VC, Soma Capital, and Company Ventures, as well as angel investors, including Nikhil Krishnan, founders of Eden Health, Quit Genius, and Care Rev. All right, let's get started. Thank you so much for joining us, Connor.
1: Thanks for having me, Vivian. I'm excited to be here.
0: Cool. So I guess we can get started by talking about your early career aspirations, starting with your entrepreneurial history since college. would love to hear the backstory on that and where you found your founder spirit.
1: Yeah, I think um, as cliched as it may be, um, like many other people, my entrepreneurial journey started with a lemonade stand. I was 10 years old and I actually like to say that it was the original Uber Eats. I would go up and down the block on my scooter asking the maintenance staff at buildings what they wanted to order. And then I try to get them their deliveries in under five minutes. And I distinctly remember opening up the cash register at the end of the day and seeing $30 in it. And to 10-year-old me, I mean, that may as well have been a million bucks. And I had a great time and put a smile on people's faces because it's always nice when a cute little kid delivers the lemonade. Unfortunately, I don't have that superpower anymore, but it was pretty cool to me that I was able to combine these two things. And then when I got to college, that was kind of the next manifestation of this. When I created Flick, which was an iPhone case that had a little mirror under the camera that you could flick out, hence the name. And I built an app along with it, an iOS app, so that you could use the app while you were walking and you were able to see what was in front of you. So like you mentioned, I introed that at CES in Las Vegas. It was a great learning experience. I was only about 19 or 20 years old. So Vegas was pretty boring, except for CES at that point. Um, And that actually got me my first job at Shout, which was a YC company started by two guys a couple of years ahead of me at Columbia. And uh, after we decided to shut down Shout, I went back to school. I didn't realize that everyone got internships in October, and it was March (laughs) at this point. And I needed to find an internship. Luckily, ZocDoc was one of the few companies that was still looking for interns. And I still remember the interview with the CTO. I thought I bombed it, but sure enough, I got the call back and spent two and a half years there. And that was a great experience as well, kind of understanding how to operate in a large organization and, and how you can affect a large organization and push it forward. And then after ZocDec, I did product and engineering at Medicare, Like you mentioned, in the Medicare Advantage space, a fairly self-explanatory name, we helped people understand their Medicare enrollment options. There are thousands of plan options in any given county. Uh, so that was pretty meaningful work and then began Axel.
0: Awesome. I guess you've always worked with startups from the very beginning, even at YC. I'm curious, like, what was it like working at your first startup? What made you fall in love with it? Or what made you, oh, wow, like, is this something I want to do?
1: Yeah, for me, I think it's the autonomy. So essentially being able to do anything necessary to push the company forward. There are really very few guardrails you kind of just come up with solutions as you're going along and you face problems on a day-to-day basis. There aren't really huge five, 10-year grand strategy visions because you're just trying to keep your head above water or at a pre-product market fit company as Shout was, you're just trying to find that niche that you can lean into in order to uh, get some customers. And that's a really appealing part to me.
0: Yeah. And I guess you kind of transitioned to healthcare serendipitously, so like, and then you started working at InterMedicare. Can you talk about how you... Got into healthcare and like why you want to work in this industry, a very complicated industry.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so there was always an inkling that I might go into healthcare. My mom is a doctor, and doctor was always an option for me. But I took three semesters off of school and college, ultimately, once to do Flick and then two semesters to do Shout. And I realized that four years of medical school plus four years of residency was not something that I was mentally cut out for. I just I couldn't bear being in the classroom that long. And so I decided that a more effective way for me personally being an entrepreneur to affect healthcare was to go into startups.
0: Sounds like you had a really adventurous college experience. <laughs> uh, it was, yeah. I'd love to talk about how Axel Health began and you know it seems like it's been a crazy year for you since you launched and everything. So take us to the beginning like What was the day you decided to start Axel? How did you meet your co-founder? And how did it all happen?
1: Yeah, the first inkling for Axel came when I moved from New York, where I was working for ZocDoc to LA, where under Medicare was. And I had had my annual physical exam in New York just before I left. And I got the first dose of a three-course vaccine. Unfortunately, this was pre-COVID, so it was not the COVID vaccine. And I needed the second. So I called up a doctor in LA and asked if I could come in just to get the second dose. And he said, nope, you need to come in, you need to get another full physical. So it took me 20 minutes to get there. I waited in the waiting room for 30 minutes. The visit took 20 minutes. And then I finally got the shot at the very, very end. And I took two hours off work to get that single jab. And I just thought there must be a better way to do this. And that's when I called my friend Adam from college who had worked in operations at Uber Eats and helped launch a bunch of their marketplaces in the Northeast. And we started talking about the unit economics of moving people and goods around cities and decided Axel could work. So we applied to YC.
0: Awesome. And I guess, how many months were you working until you joined YC? What was the timeline for that?
1: So we applied to YC within six weeks of starting work on Axel.
0: Wow, that's awesome. So you came in sort of pretty early and finished with a product. (laughs) What was that like?
1: Yeah, I mean, we came in very early and we're thankful to them for taking us on so early. One of the issues of starting a healthcare company is that there is a lot of complexity from a regulatory and legal standpoint. So with no funding at all, it can be quite difficult to start a company. So as soon as we decided that the unit economics of this could work, that's when we started to go out to VCs and apply to YC as well so that we could have that little bit of funding just so we could get over some of the legal and regulatory hurdles.
0: Is this something that you learn through like you know your multiple experiences at the pre seed stage, you know, working at Intermedicare and Shout and et cetera?
1: In terms of the
0: the need to the, raise funding earlier, the like timeline.
1: So that was a quick timeline. I think if I were starting a consumer brand like Shout, I don't necessarily if you can support yourself, I don't think that raising money that early is generally necessary. I think it becomes after YC, when we had traction, it became a lot easier to talk to VCs. And I think that that will always be the case. And I think that Adam and I were helped by our backgrounds as well, which were pretty well aligned with the business. So mine in healthcare and in operations and logistics, which helped us get that early funding as well.
0: Awesome. I guess going back to what is Axel Health and what you're building, can you describe to us what the problem Axel Health is solving for, how important it is for the healthcare system today?
1: Yeah. So even if you have insurance, Uh, Healthcare is not particularly accessible. We live in a world where you can get alcohol delivered in under 30 minutes, but it takes weeks to get a doctor's appointment. I think the timeline that ZocDoc quotes is generally takes about three weeks to get a doctor's appointment. And even once you do get the appointment, doctor's offices are only open from nine to five. It may be 30 minutes away from the patient. You may waiting room for 30 minutes. And that model is designed to optimize for the efficiency of doctors, which is important. But the floodgates for telehealth really opened up during the pandemic, meaning that doctors can be highly utilized over video, and we can send allied health professionals with a lower cost structure to patients' homes. In the case of an allied health professional, the utilization requirements are much lower. So a phlebotomist may make $20 an hour, whereas a doctor makes $150 an hour. So in essence, we're trying to create a world where you can interact with your doctor fully virtually, whether that be over video or asynchronous chat. And then Axel can handle any physical aspect of the visit in the patient's home.
0: What is the impact to the healthcare system as a whole? Like in my courses that we're in, we talk about the iron triangle. So I'm curious what your perspective is on, it sounds like there's obviously cost advantages there.
1: Well, I like to think that Axel is a unicorn model insofar as we can increase access, which helps patients, we can decrease costs, which helps payers, and we can increase provider utilization, which helps providers by allowing them to be fully virtual. So I think that a lot of healthcare ideas die when not all stakeholders benefit from its implementation, right? A payer is not going to be willing to implement something that's only convenient for patients or providers, right? So it needs to benefit everyone. And I think that in the case of Axel, like you're pointing out, there are, we do benefit a lot of the different stakeholders, which is why it works.
0: Awesome. And I guess in terms of the API, so how does it work on the product side?
1: Yeah, Axle is an online offline API, which means the interactions with the API lead to actions in the real world. And we have a dual approach. We help companies that already have their own clinical staff by improving their efficiency in doing house calls. So we provide them with the API that does scheduling, routing, and optimization and gives a patient experience similar to Uber, where patients can see where their health professional is, what their ETA is, and can communicate with them if necessary. And that's more of a pure SaaS offering, like I said, for these companies that already have their own clinical staff they want to send at home. And then we also have access to a network of health professionals so that companies that don't have their own clinical staff and want to offer in-home services to their patients can leverage the Axle API to tap into that network of health professionals. So we want to be a plug and play solution for companies of any size regardless of whether they do or don't have clinical resources or whatever the case may be. We want to be maximally flexible for them.
0: And what types of services do you mean when you say you provide at-home diagnostics or testing? Like what are specific examples of that?
1: Yeah, we work with clients on a case by case basis to offer the services they want for their patients. So we've gotten requests to do everything from, you know, as simple as COVID testing to vascular ultrasounds for post-op cardiac patients. So it really does run the gamut. So far, we've partnered with a pretty wide range of companies. Some examples are a wellness brand, a CRO, a Medicare Advantage company, regional labs. So the breadth of industries that the in-home piece applies to is really enormous.
0: Awesome. Sounds like there's a lot of potential to scale in different industries and cases I'm curious in terms of the go to market. So it sounds like you decided to go B2B and serve as an API rather than working directly with patients. Can you talk about the decision process there if there was one ongoing B2B or B2C?
1: Yeah, we initially thought we might go B2C. We were thinking about what our entry point would be in terms of service, and we quickly realized that the opportunity was much larger if we turned this into an as a service offering. I mentioned we have a CRO, an MA company, labs. There's no way that we could have created all of those, obviously. So what you were alluding to and the breadth of the industries that can be addressed, we wanted to make sure that we were available to all of them. So picking a single service or vertical would have kneecapped us in terms of TAM. And I think we can have a greater impact by making what is a very difficult problem, meaning logistics and optimization and supply chain management piece of in-home care and commoditizing it so that as many companies as possible can offer it for all their patients.
0: And when you talk about these partnerships, what are the outcomes and early successes you've seen from these partnerships? Like, what are the results that you've been seeing through your partnerships with the Medicare or the different like home testing agencies?
1: Yeah. So uh, just as an example, Same Day Health was our first partner. They spun up during COVID and ended up doing tens of thousands of tests per month. And have now moved into being a more encompassing virtual care provider. And they weren't doing in-home before you know. we got in contact with them. So just to reiterate, doing in-home is in a time and cost-efficient way with a great patient experience is really hard. For example, how do you optimize routing so health professionals aren't crisscrossing the city, especially because we support visits with two-hour lead time? How do you show real-time availability? How do you give patients accurate ETAs or track health professional mileage? So setting this up in-house would take thousands of engineering hours. And even then, this is all we think about, right? It's what we do all day. And Sameday has seen great results from using Axle. So the patient MPS score of the partnership is 87, which is higher than Starbucks and Amazon. And they've been able to tap into a customer segment that might have fallen off if they needed to go on-site for services. So it's both financially good for Sameday, and it's a great experience for patients too.
0: Awesome. Yeah, it sounds like a really big challenge to coordinate everything I can imagine people's demands are pretty high when it's more of like coming to my home and, and everything working smoothly. Speaking of that, I guess, what are some other challenges you've faced and how you overcame them in the last, it's only been a year, but I would love to hear your early stories there.
1: No shortage of challenges, even if it's only a year. So I don't know if it's a challenge per se, uh, but certainly an early dilemma we faced was how much to lean into COVID testing as a service on Axle. And as we began spinning up operations in January, the vaccine was on the horizon. So we knew, and of course, we're still hoping, that the half-life of COVID testing is short. And so the question was, do we hitch our wagon to something that could go away in a few months or only concentrate on long-term use cases that weren't COVID? And personally, I'm a big believer in momentum at a startup and not even really talking about valuation or option strike price or whatever you normally associate with momentum, but really product progress and customer retention. And so the decision I saw was one between building a product for users who interacted with it day in and day out, or waiting for the quote-unquote perfect use case to come along, and we ultimately decided to support COVID testing on the platform. But with that said, we made sure that the features we built were generic enough to apply to subsequent customers and use cases, and it worked out. COVID testing did provide us with our first customers and allowed us to quickly reach a meaningful product state, while also enabling us to handle non-COVID use cases we offer now.
0: Yeah, that totally makes sense. You know, we all live in the pandemic, so it's always helpful to, you know, go with the flow and the tailwinds that we have today. I guess moving to uh, your recent fundraise, congratulations. I noticed that, you know, you just finished the fundraising process a few months ago. So it's pretty fresh in your mind, the process, a painful process. Can you talk about what it was like fundraising, sort of what you look for investors, what advice you may have for people who are going through this process themselves?
1: Yeah, so it was definitely a long process. I enjoyed meeting a lot of investors who are clearly interested in the space, and they recognize the value prop of what we're doing. It's definitely a process though. So the spreadsheets, the notes, the follow-ups, it did feel like progress in some areas of the company was suspended while we were fundraising. Luckily, it only took us three weeks though, from start to finish, but it was a very long three weeks. And then in terms of advice for anyone who's listening and is fundraising, I just say power through the rejections. Our round was ultimately oversubscribed, but on a percentage basis we received way more rejections than offers. And if you believe in what you're doing then you shouldn't take a rejection as an invalidation of it. I think VCs would be the first to admit that they see thousands of deals and can't possibly get them all right. I was actually it was funny when one of our investors he told us about the concept of the anti-portfolio, so the companies that VCs have passed on and then went on to great success. And it was interesting to hear a couple of VCs actually told me that they had passed on a friend of mine who now runs a very successful company. And it was inspiring to see that as successful a company as that is, that some very well-respected VCs passed. So I just say, keep on keeping on.
0: Yeah, no, I totally get that. After being VC for a bit, we already... I can already have my little anti-portfolio, but I'm glad that you're in our portfolio. So hopefully that will be in other people's anti-portfolio and they will have- Exactly. (laughs) I guess in terms of uh, other programs that you're part of, how helpful was the YC program for your success? I know you were involved with it in different parts of your career, but curious to hear sort of the accelerator model and how
1: it helped you. YC was invaluable. I mean, I I do want to give a quick shout out to Michael Seibel, Reshma, Klonani, Gustav Alstromer, Ralph Guti, they were our partners and they were absolutely incredible in helping us through the process. I see YC as sort of like school. I consider myself fairly self-motivated, but there's nothing like the laser focus that's brought on by giving weekly updates to a group of partners and peers. And that sense of urgency that it instills and the simplicity of the motto, write code and talk to users, is kind of deceptive. It's so easy for a young company to get off track. And caught up in stuff that doesn't matter. And I think that YC is very good at making sure that you're focused throughout the three months.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Awesome. I guess moving towards Axel again, I guess I'm curious about the impact. You mentioned like testing with COVID. That clearly has helped the company grow in the early stages. But what are you most excited about in terms of the future of Axle Health post COVID and also in the next 10 years? Like let's, I guess, short term and long term.
1: I think 10 years is a long time. So I think the easier question to answer would probably be what will stay the same. And definitely I can say in 10 years that we'll still be focusing on sending high quality health professionals into patients' homes and making that process more time and cost efficient. But I also don't want to give you a cop-out answer. So to pull out the crystal ball, my hope is that everyone in the country and maybe even abroad in 10 years will have an interaction with Axel on a yearly basis even if they don't realize that we're the ones providing the service.
0: That's like everyone using Uber. It will just be everyday life. (laughs) Exactly. Cool. And then in terms of future of healthcare as a whole, we see a lot of players growing the space, such as Dispatch Health, MedArrive on the urgent care side, a lot of DTC testing services, just interviewed Modern Fertility. There's Honor and Papa on the caregiver side for Medicare patients. We'd love to hear what your perspective is on the future of home health and home diagnostics? I know it's a big question, but love your perspective since you sit in this space every day and think about it all the time.
1: Yeah, I I think the fact that I chose to give up my job may also, at EnterMedicare, may give away my answer that I think that home healthcare is the future. It's lock, stock, and barrel. I think we're at a unique inflection point where both providers and patients are comfortable with virtual interactions. And I think we were missing both of those pieces before the pandemic. So before the pandemic, only 8% of patients had had a telehealth visit. Now post-pandemic or during pandemic, that's now the majority of people. And unfortunately, it took the pandemic to institute that shift in how people think about virtual care and in-home care. But as often happens, that type of systemic shock kind of jolted the healthcare system onto a different course, which I would argue in the long run is a positive for patients and for payers. You know, we're the richest country in the world, but people die because they can't access care. And I think that now that patients are comfortable with both virtual and in-home interactions, we can lean into getting patients care as often as necessary so that access is no longer a barrier. Because, you know, simple conditions, if left untreated, can have huge consequences if it's something like diabetes, for example, which is also bad for payers, right? Because it can lead to big claims down the road. So if we can snuff out and treat all of these conditions early by meeting patients where they're at, literally, then health comes should improve dramatically.
0: And speaking of pairs, do you see them more and more willing to fund these programs, work with these partners and startups in order to facilitate a lot of these
1: services? Yeah. When we put up our website, I actually put the contact form on there expecting that no one would reach out. And we actually had two payers covering tens of millions of lives combined reach out through the contact form. So I think that that's indicative of the way that payers are looking at this and saying, okay, let's go into this space. I think there might be some startups that can help us facilitate these kinds of offerings that can be both better for patients and for us. And they're willing to fill out a contact form on a website of a startup and get in touch with us. So I definitely think that they're shifting towards willingness to work with companies like us.
0: That's great to hear. In terms of on the payer side also, given your experience working at EnterMedicare and a lot of regulations changing, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the future of Medicare enrollments, also just like the changes in regulations over the last year.
1: I'm a big fan of Medicare and Medicare Advantage. Spent a year and a half working at a company called Enter Medicare. So it would be weird if I weren't. For a lot of people, Medicare Advantage is actually the best insurance they'll ever have, both in terms of coverage and cost. It's actually pretty good. And I think that the utilization of Medicare Advantage is going to increase even more than it already has. I mean, it's it tripled or something like that in the past 15 years. And many plans cover things like dental or vision that Original Medicare doesn't. So consumers are drawn to these plans as compared to Original Medicare. The industry is competitive, so it ensures that the prices are low, that the benefit offerings are robust. So I'm a huge fan.
0: I'm excited for all the things that are happening this year, including Axel Health. guess wrapping up, I'd love to talk about some advice that you have for people interested in digital health startups. Like we are a Warren podcast. So a lot of our audience members are students. We'd be curious to hear, you know, advice from you who's been through all these startups and founded a company. If you have anything specific for them?
1: I think I mentioned, I alluded to it a little bit before, but if you're interested in founding a digital health startup, I'd say that the most important thing is to make sure that all stakeholders benefit from your offering, or at the very least that they don't lose out. So, I mean, when I say stakeholders, I mean providers, health systems, payers, and patients. It's not enough to serve one or the other. And it sounds kind of obvious, but healthcare is structured really differently from most other industries. So, as I'm sure everyone listening knows, the person receiving services is more often than not the one paying for those services. And so, in Axel's case, we can help Payers reach patients with limited access to care who are often the least healthy patients. So we treat those patients sooner, the patients are healthier, and the payer spends less over time. So it's a win-win. If your offering only helps one stakeholder, then you're going to have trouble selling it. And then you can also do something like what a lot of the DDC companies like Roe or Hims, have done, which is turn the patient into the payer or the payer into the patient, meaning that you only have one stakeholder to please. So there are a couple different ways that you can go with it. And if anyone listening is interested in joining a digital health startup, then you can come join us at Axel.
0: Awesome. Yeah. What are you hiring for right now?
1: We're hiring for full stack engineers and we'll be hiring for some operations roles as well.
0: Okay, cool. It's exciting how fast you guys are growing. I'll post the job link in the blog post for everyone. I guess in terms of advice for founders early in the zero to one journey, as representing pair, we have a summer accelerator as well. Working with pre seed founders, our mantras helping founders on this very specific stage. You're currently in it, or I guess at the one stage now, sort of what advice do you have for those founders?
1: It's a roller coaster for sure. It's a fun roller coaster, but a roller coaster nonetheless. I just say don't give up. If you believe in your product and customers love it, there's no reason not to continue doing it. I've been told I wasn't the right person to start Axle, or that I don't have enough experience or that patients. Don't want in-home healthcare, but I just kind of ignored the noise. And I actually have recently thought back to this thing my dad told me when I was a kid. I played goalie on my soccer team, and I'm 5'9". Goalies are usually around 6'3". And we were on the way home from practice one day, and that topic came up. And he said, Connor, don't let anyone tell you that you can't achieve something. Early in my career, people told me I couldn't measure the lamb shift of hydrogenic uranium, but I did it. And I still, to this day, have absolutely no clue what that means or what hydrogenic uranium is. But the sentiment remains, which is if you want it, just go for it.
0: Awesome. (laughs) I also need to look up what uranium is. (laughs) Cool. I love that advice. Very positive. Ending note. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I'm really excited for what's next for Axel Health.
1: Awesome. Thanks for having me, Vivian.